Welcome to the Practice Brave Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Battles, a strength and conditioning coach and the founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism. The Practice Brave Podcast brings you the relatable, trustworthy, and transparent health and fitness information you're looking for when it comes to coaching, being coached, and transitioning through the variables of motherhood and womanhood. If you're a pregnant or postpartum athlete or a coach working with this population, this show is specifically designed for you. All right, let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Practice Brave Podcast. Today, I am here with Dr. Sam Ellis, and she is a dermatologist practicing in Northern California. And while talking about skincare might be something that is you wouldn't expect necessarily from me, I do think that it's a component of women's health that there's a lot of BS that surrounds and very similar to the fitness industry. And I started following Sam because she was a teammate that my sister played sports with in college. And when I started following her, I'm like, oh my God, this girl is so good at explaining and teaching and making skincare easy to understand. And she's actually qualified to do so, <laughs> uh, to tell you about her skincare routine or maybe what yours should be like. Um, and so we're going to be going over a lot of different topics that pertain to taking care of yourself as we, as we all continue to age. And so Sam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional background, educational, all that we want to know about you. Okay. So I grew up in Northern California, played sports pretty much my entire life. So being an athlete and being a student were kind of like my two passions and endeavors and I was a big nerd, but also loved sports. And as you know, I, I, I played water polo with your sister, Desiree. And then I went to UCLA for my undergraduate degree in biology. So I studied that for four years. And then I got a full ride scholarship to medical school, which was awesome. I went to the University of Michigan. So medical school is another four years of training. And then I did my dermatology residency. I came back to California and did it at UC Davis. And that's a year of internal medicine training, so general medicine training, plus three additional years of dermatology-specific training. Then you take your board exam to become a board-certified dermatologist, and that board certification is really important because a lot of people don't know this in medicine, but if you go to medical school, and even if you don't specialize in anything, you can call yourself whatever kind of doctor you want as long as you have that MD or DO degree behind your name. So you have to get the board certification though to like be legit. And then now I practice in a private practice in Danville, which is a town east of San Francisco. And I do medical and cosmetic dermatology there. And I also teach at UC Davis. You are brilliant. And you're also <laughs> like very young. I mean, well, relatively speaking, you've been in school forever and now you are in your career and you're doing so much. And it's so incredible to see just how successful you are. And then obviously how knowledgeable you are about this. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's one of those things when you're going through, you know, you're in school, your entire twenties and you feel like, oh my gosh, like, am I sacrificing my whole life to do this passion of mine? But then you realize the twenties is only one decade and right. <laughs> sometimes you have to make sacrifices to be able to do what you want for the rest of your life. And so no regrets. I am super happy with what I did. And plus you're learning things that you're excited about. So it didn't, it was hard obviously and challenging, but I, I love what I do so much. So I'm really happy now. 
Yeah. And I can literally see that. So when I started (laughs) following you on Instagram, it just was so evident how passionate you are about not just helping your patients, but also teaching people and sifting through so much of the like, this is BS. This is actually what you need to do and what you need to know and making it understandable. Um, Totally. I mean, the skincare industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. So of course their main objective is to like make money. And part of that is to make a million products. And I feel like it gets really confusing for patients of what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. Add in that the whole like social media atmosphere of people who don't have specific dermatology training or have maybe inadequate dermatology training, giving advice and I feel bad for people because how are they supposed to know who to trust and what things to take to heart and what things can be kind of disregarded? Right. It sounds very similar to the health and fitness and nutrition industry where there's just a lot of noise and not enough quality information that's being publicly shared. You know, it's really hard to know how to sift through that. And that's why I thought that this conversation is so complimentary, like really taking care of our body and really taking care of something like our skin as we age and what that actually looks like, especially because we're so heavily influenced by a culture that sells us a bunch of BS. (laughs) Totally. I mean, and skin is your largest organ. So, and a lot of internal health manifests itself on the skin and most people know if they're not doing well in their life, if they look at their skin, their skin does, doesn't, you know, kind of reflects that state of their being. So I'm, I'm more than happy to kind of like shed some light on things and just get people kind of excited about their skin. I think people kind of ignore their skin until their skin has problems. And then you become very reactive to whatever problem you're seeing. And so getting people interested in skincare and understanding skincare from maybe an early stage in their life. I think can help set them up for success for many years to come. Absolutely. And that's something that you and I talked about the other night where I was like, I think my skincare routine has only ever just been like chlorine for the first <laughs> 20 years of my life. Yeah. Chlorine and sun. <laughs> totally. And then I hit 30 and was like, God, maybe I should care, but I don't exactly know where to start. I don't wear makeup and, you know, like try to wear sunscreen often, but it just seems like it's really hard to know what do I do if I'm like a low maintenance person and I want to figure out a way to just take care of myself? (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think skin is like a good place to start because it's not, it's neither a huge monetary investment nor a huge time investment. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. And so it's a nice way to kind of complement what other regimen you're like doing in your life, whether that's like diet or exercise or anything. It's just part of like taking care of yourself and feeling good and feeling confident in your body. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about skincare culture. So what do you wish women knew? What makes you as a dermatologist totally crazy? And why do you think we see such extreme trends? Oh, that's good. Okay. I think I'll start with the last part, which is like, why do we get these trends? And I think a lot of it is due to the fact that people get desperate. It's the same thing with like weight loss or getting in shape. It's like, it's something you want so badly that you're willing to go to any extreme and sometimes pay any amount to do it quickly, like as quickly as possible (laughs) um, and get like the most dramatic result possible. And so I think a lot of skincare companies and influencers will sort of capitalize on that and really prey on people's kind of lack of knowledge about the subject. And so 
I mean, over the past 15 years, there have been so many different skincare trends. Initially, it was like really basic skincare. Five years ago, it was all about this like 10 to 12 step like skincare regimen. And I think all of that is just from people's like deep seated urge to achieve perfection in their skin and kind of willingness to try anything for it because they don't understand the data out there or people are not forthcoming about what is truly achievable with like a topical skin regimen. And I think everyone has skin. And so everyone has an opinion on it. And whether or not you're qualified to have an opinion, I mean, okay, everyone's qualified to have an opinion, <laughs> but whether that opinion is based in like fact or science is not always so evident. But I think, you know, you see a 20 year old out there who has beautiful skin. And so you're like, oh, this person must be qualified to give skincare advice. They have really good skin. But I mean, that could just be genetics or the fact that they're 20. And so I think we like look to these influencers for guidance when maybe they don't always have it. I absolutely agree with that and certainly see a lot of parallels with the fitness industry. And so what, what makes you crazy? What drives you absolutely crazy? Oh God. Okay. (laughs) I think (laughs) so many things. I try not to have pet peeves because like I try to live in a very positive space and not like (laughs) let other people, like what they're doing frustrate me, but you know, I'm only human. I think people doing things like putting really extreme things on their skin, it really bothers me. Like lemon juice, apple cider vinegar, like these things are super acidic. And I see people, I mean, I see people in my clinic who have given themselves chemical burns, people doing like clinical strength chemical peels in their own home. I think people just, there's a lot of people who will like demonstrate things on YouTube that are are procedures that really should be done in an office by a doctor or by a physician assistant or a nurse with a doctor's supervision and people just do it at home. And I think people are really cavalier about treating their skin sometimes. And like, it's, it's so dangerous. Like I want to empower people to like do positive things for their skin, but not things that should be done in a clinical setting. And then the other thing, okay, can I say more than one thing or is that too? Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Then the other thing is there are a lot of people out there who will read skincare ingredients. So they'll look at a product, they'll look through the ingredients and they'll say, oh, this has good ingredients. Therefore, it's going to be good for my skin. And that's not really the case because skincare products are formulas. It's chemistry. It's how those ingredients work together. It's not just like a single ingredient. You say, oh, this has niacinamide. It's going to be great for my skin or this has green tea extracts. It's going to be good for my skin. It's how all those products work together. And so I, it really bothers me when there are influencers out there who are just speaking to the ingredients without really thinking about how those ingredients interact with one another and how those ingredients, when they're interacting with one another, will actually affect the skin. Absolutely. Okay. I think there's a <laughs> the word like natural and fear of chemicals. But- oh my gosh. Thank you for saying that. I completely <laughs> forgot to mention that. I completely agree. Yes. Yeah. And there's like so much fear around that. Like, well, I only want natural and I only want what's organic or whatever, but there's not a whole lot of understanding of like you just mentioned how things actually have to work together and their chemistry. And um, it's not just these single ingredients. And it's something that there's not a lot of understanding around because we hear natural and we think, oh, that's better. I think. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> like my body is natural. So I want natural ingredients. And I actually have lots of patients who come in with that given themselves terrible like burns and allergic reactions from using natural products. And it's not that natural products are necessarily bad, but they're not like, they're not perfect either. I mean, I always tell patients, well, cyanide is natural. Poison ivy is natural. You know, those are things like, 
and water is a chemical. So it's not so black and white in determining what's good and what's bad, but it's very hard when I have a patient in my practice who is really has some great goals for their skin, but they only want to use natural products and they only want to use organic things because a lot of times they're just they don't cut it. There's a reason that the, there's been amazing inventions of synthetic ingredients. They, they oftentimes work better because scientists have worked over time to engineer those products to be more effective. So it's not dangerous. <laughs> and your skin doesn't absorb everything you put on it. Like It doesn't all get into your bloodstream. It doesn't wreak havoc. Most of it sits on top of your skin in those upper layers and works just in that area. It doesn't all end up throughout your body. Ooh, that was so good. That's so informative. And I think it's really helpful for like, no one educates us on our skin, right? Like mm-hmm. no one has ever sat and really in school. And, and like, I mean, it's very rare to have this depth understanding of how all of this actually works from a trustworthy resource. So I appreciate that, uh, like your take on all of this. Thank you. So it's a good segue in the next question that we kind of touched on like, what not to do. (laughs) So let's again, cut the BS. What are some of the absolute basics of skincare? What, like if you do like, basically like if you, if you do nothing else, at least do this. (laughs) Okay. So it sort of depends on what your skin is like, because some people are trying to treat a very specific thing on their skin, like acne or pigmentation or wrinkles or whatever. But if you we're just starting with like normal skin. Like what does it need? All it needs is protection basically. So if I could pick one product for the rest of my life and nothing else for my skin, it would be sunscreen. The reason for that is there's nothing more damaging to your skin that you would come in contact with on a daily basis than UV radiation. It causes, I mean, cosmetically it causes problems like wrinkles and age spots and pigmentation issues and all of that. But more than that, it it can cause skin cancer. And skin cancer is the most common kind of cancer in the United States. You know, more than one in five people will get a skin cancer in their lifetime in America. So it's super common. So if you do nothing else, you need to protect your skin from the sun. Is there a product or ingredient or like best kind of sunscreen, SPF, whatever to Mm -hmm. use? Yeah. So SPF 30 or higher is going to do the work for the vast majority of people. So 30 or higher is completely fine. Then people will often break sunscreens down into categories of what what they'll call chemical sunscreens versus mineral sunscreens. And mineral sunscreens, the main protective ingredients are either zinc or titanium, whereas there's tons of different chemical sunscreens, I should say, but no one is not better than the other chemical sunscreens for some people can be a little bit more irritating to their skin versus the mineral ones. But the mineral ones like zinc and titanium, I think we can all think back to those like lifeguards with the white sunscreen on their nose. Like that's like zinc sunscreen. And obviously the technology has come a long way since the eighties, but (laughs) (laughs) like oftentimes those mineral sunscreens don't rub in as well. And so people don't like to use them. So I always tell my patients, There's no one brand or one type or one specific sunscreen ingredient, as long as it's SPF 30 or higher, and you will wear it every day. So finding a formula that you enjoy putting on, that smells fine to you, that rubs in well, that doesn't sting your eyes. And there's a little bit of trial and error in finding a sunscreen that you really like, but then kind of once you settle in on one, it it makes your skincare regimen so much easier. Interesting. And so if like different makeup 
brand. And like, look, you guys, I, I don't even, I don't wear makeup actually at all. I don't know a whole lot about this, but I do know that like liquid foundation or whatever that's like moisturizer, liquid moisturizer, tinted moisturizer. Tinted moisturizer, yeah. Okay. So like there's SPF in that. Is that good enough? Or do you think we need almost like a base layer of sunscreen and then put the makeup on the face? I'm glad you brought that up. So when... (laughs) When we're doing, like, when we're evaluating sunscreens in a laboratory setting and trying to determine what their SPF, which is sun protection factor, what their sun protection factor is going to be, part of determining that is how much product goes on. So you actually need a pretty substantial layer of sunscreen to actually achieve the SPF that you're trying to do. So if you put a really thin layer of SPF 30 on, you might only be getting SPF 10. So the problem with makeup and sunscreen and makeup is that if you just rely on that, most people are not caking on the makeup. They are not putting on a thick layer the way I would ask them to put on a thick layer of sunscreen. And so they're not really achieving the sun protection factor that they really need with with makeup alone. So I always tell patients, do not rely on the SPF in your makeup. You need a separate layer of sunscreen. And then you can always put SPF makeup or you know, tinted moisturizer with SPF on top, but do not rely on that alone. And I am seriously, I'm so happy you brought that up because so many times patients, I'll ask them, do you wear sunscreen? And they'll say, oh yeah, I do. And then I say, oh, do you mind, you know, what brand? And then they'll say, oh, it's in my makeup. And then I realize like, oh, they're not getting adequate protection. Right. Like I'm so bad at all of this. Like I'm like, like if it's in my like face lotion, that's usually as good as it gets, but it, it is, I think, especially living in California here and having a lifetime of um, exposure to the sun, blonde hair, blue eyes. And I know that's maybe a consideration too. Definitely. That definitely increases your types and uh, just our genetic makeup in general. Totally. I mean, I love being outside. I love hiking. I love spending time outdoors, but And I never tell my patients like to stop doing any of their activities. Like it is so good to lead an active lifestyle and there are so many benefits beyond (laughs) protecting, like you, you want to protect your skin from the sun, but it's not worth it to give up an active lifestyle. So it's more about tailoring your sun protection to your activity level. And then the other thing I always recommend is like sun protective clothing. So I, I'm fine putting sunscreen on my face, but I don't love the feel of putting sunscreen on my whole body. And I, you know, I've, I have probably have a hundred different sunscreens in my apartment. I could pick whatever sunscreen I want to use, but it doesn't feel great to put it everywhere. So I really rely on like long sleeves and pants and hats and things like that to give me protection for the rest of my body. Interesting. So you think that, or you would suggest that we would put some sunscreen on our face. And then if you are somebody who wears makeup, then apply your foundation or your whatever. Totally. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, that's really, I think that's good to know as far as like step-by-step process for. Yeah. Sunscreen should be like the last step of your skincare routine. So say you wake up in the morning and you wash your face in the morning. Maybe you put on like a vitamin C serum or some type of topical antioxidant, which we can talk more about. And then you put your, like your sunscreen is the last layer of your skincare routine or the first step of your makeup routine. Oh, interesting. Okay. No, this is good to know. I I mean, I don't have a routine. (laughs) Certainly should. So I'm going, I'm so excited to hear about what kind of, you know, what other basics of a routine you would recommend. So we got sunscreen covered. What else? Sunscreen definitely covered. And that is the most important. So the other thing is cleansing your face. So 
if you wake up in the morning and your face is not oily, you don't have, like, you're not greasy. Some people will wake up and they'll have really oily skin and they kind of need to cleanse that off in order for their other products to absorb that they're going to put on for the day. But most people in the morning do not need to wash their face. You just need to put a, like splash some water on your face, wake yourself up, get the crusties out of your eyes, but that's kind of it. And then the other things I'll talk about are kind of, they're optional. So one is using a topical antioxidant. And what an antioxidant does is it essentially fights off free radicals and free radicals are basically like byproducts of cellular metabolism in your skin. So when your skin is working throughout the day and just doing its normal processes, it it basically gets stressed and these stress molecules build up in the skin and can cause added damage. So by using an antioxidant on the top of your skin, you can kind of fight some of that. It also helps fight UV radiation and the damage that sunlight does. So I think of an antioxidant as being complementary to your sunscreen. It's one of those things, if you're going for like an A plus routine, I would add in. If you're just like starting from basics, just getting your face wet in the morning and putting on like a sun, a moisturizing sunscreen is really all you need to do. Right. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So what, what other things? Okay. Antioxidant that, and then in the evening you want to wash your face. So I was actually kind of surprised to find that a lot of people don't wash their face before going to bed. It's not necessarily a hygiene thing, but it, it does set your, basically I think of you need to protect your face during the day and let your skin recover at nighttime. And it's hard for your skin to recover if it's still covered in the dirt and oil and makeup and all those things that you had put on during the day. So it's really important to gently cleanse your face at night, wash all of that away. Essentially, you should not have any grime on the towel when you're cleansing your face at night and you're drying it off. And then a moisturizer of some kind. So something to just hydrate the skin, replenish it, make it look nice and supple is all you need. Some people will add something called a retinoid in. So I think this is like the probably the best anti-aging thing someone can use on their skin besides sunscreen. And a retinoid is basically a, vit- a topical vitamin A derivative that helps with wrinkles, fine line, pigmentation. If like anyone wants any anti-aging cream, I'm like, okay, just get one with retinol or retinoid in it. So that brings me to my next question that I didn't send you is, would you, do you think that most people can get this, get products that are really good for their skin at a drugstore? Or do you think that they need to get it through their dermatologist or after seeing a dermatologist? Yeah. No, I think you can definitely get it at a drugstore. I think this wasn't the case maybe 10 years ago, but now retinols are pretty much everywhere. And retinol is not prescription strength, but it still has the capacity to induce a lot of really positive changes in the skin. And I usually recommend, regardless if someone's seeing me in my office, I usually recommend that they start with a retinol anyway that's over the counter and can be purchased at a drugstore before we get into prescription strength stuff. But yeah, like Neutrogena and Olay and Rock, these are all brands that can be found at Target or CVS or Rite Aid. They're great. They all have a retinol in their line that is effective. Okay. That's good to know. Because I think that's another thing that people maybe get nervous about is, oh my gosh, well, that's going to be a lot of money trying to get this perfect skincare routine. And I think that's why a lot of the like MLM or oh yeah, just like just different influencer skincare lines. Mm-hmm. You know, like you guys have been asking about my skincare routine. Like no one has ever asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I think that's why those are tempting, because it seems like oh, this is it has this like package deal kind of mm-hmm. of what I want. And so, 
is there a lot of piecing together that we need to do? Or do you think some of those are good? Does it just... (laughs) I mean, yeah, no, I think not really. Like, I feel like there are like categories of products that are good to have basically an antioxidant, a sunscreen, a retinol, but no, they don't need to be like all from the same brand at all. I often will mix like what we call medical grade. So things that you can get like a dermatologist's office or might be a little bit pricier with like drugstore finds. And part of that too, is that it's just it's my job. It's my hobby. Like skincare is everything to me. So I probably use a wider variety of products than the average person, but that's certainly not necessary. And I, yeah, I do. I think people are just like desperate to get their skin better. And so they want to like try these things and do all these things, but it's totally unneeded. And then the other thing with incorporating, like if you're going to start a skincare regimen from scratch is like, you have to be realistic with how fast you can expect results. And it's kind of, it's, I mean, literally when I'm talking to my patients, I make the analogy of exercising and trying to get in shape. Like you might feel good about your routine. Like the first couple weeks you're in, you might even be sore. Like your skin might react in kind of some unexpected or unpleasant ways initially, but we're really looking for results in like months down the line. It's not like an overnight process with your skin. And I think sometimes people get discouraged because they start a regimen and then three weeks later, they're like, huh, like why aren't all my wrinkles and why isn't all my sun damage that I've incurred over my entire lifetime gone in three weeks? And it just, nothing in skin is fast. It does not happen quickly. Absolutely. So for people that are really active and say they're, they're leaving the gym and they're not going to quite be able to like shower off completely. Are there any like wipes or like facial cleansing things that you would recommend using? Or is that just not really that great of an idea? Yeah. So I think there are, there are some like wipes. The problem with a lot of wipe, like prepackaged wipes is they have a lot of like either fragrance or preservatives in them and preservatives aren't necessarily bad, but they can induce allergic reactions and make people's skin really irritated. So there's a category of products called micellar water. And micellar water is sort of like a very gentle, it can be a makeup remover. It can, it's almost like super, super, super diluted baby shampoo. It is like super diluted soap that can be left on the skin. So oftentimes I will tell people like, buy a bottle of micellar water, keep it in your gym bag, squirt it on a towel or a cotton pad, and just do like a pass over your face to sort of just get the grime of the gym or dirt if you're like doing an outdoor workout off of your face and then just shower or wash your face when it's most convenient to you. Got it. Yeah. Cause I feel like that's, there's plenty of times where I work out and then my sweat dries and I just, mm-hmm. hey, <laughs> yep. I oh, totally. I think all- sound very cleanly over here. Yeah. And, but like, honestly, like if you find that you work out and you don't wash your face for a few hours and you don't get broken out and it doesn't make your skin feel like dry or tight or irritated. It's also fine. Our skin is incredibly resilient. And oftentimes when someone comes into my office and they're having a lot of problems with their skin, it's because they're almost like doing too much to their skin and their skin is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like I got this. You don't need to like give me all this support. And so if you're not having problems with your skin, with your current routine, you also don't need to do any of it. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about pregnancy and postpartum skin and hair changes. Why does this happen and what can we do or what should we expect within that season? Yeah, let's see. So we can touch on pregnancy first. So 
obviously with pregnancy, like so much is going on with your body. Your hormones are at the highest levels they've ever been in your lifetime. You have a lot more blood coursing through your veins. Like there's a lot going on. So things I notice in my pregnant patients is everyone gets like a little bit puffy. I don't know if you experience this in your pregnancies at all, but you just feel like a little bit like waterlogged. Um, yes, I was puffy <laughs> everywhere, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> like your face gets more, like even though you haven't put on a lot of weight, like people's face gets fuller, their cheeks get rosier. That's due to like the increased blood flow and their lips get puffier, which a lot of people really like. Uh, but also because you have so much estrogen going on in your body, there's a couple things that can happen that are less ideal. So people will get more like broken blood vessels on their body and on their face. So they'll notice sometimes that they have like a lot more redness in their cheeks and in their legs. You can get spider veins during your pregnancy. That's due not only to the increased estrogen level, but also the fact that you have this baby pushing down on the lower half of your body, which is sort of like putting pressure on the veins, which normally bring blood back to your heart. And that baby's kind of getting in the way of that. And so the blood just sort of pools in your legs and can cause those veins to become enlarged and then become visible. So I see a lot of patients after pregnancy for their like vessels on their legs that they're not happy with. Um, Stretch marks, obviously big one. And we can talk more about that because I feel like I get tons of questions on stretch marks. Um, And then the last one is like melasma. So a lot of people will get this kind of like increased pigmentation on their cheeks or upper lip or on their forehead when they get pregnant. It's actually called also called the mask of pregnancy. And that's really due to the increased hormones during pregnancy. But a lot of people get very bothered by it rightfully because it's not, it's not the best look. And that definitely happens during pregnancy too. So fun. Yeah. Right. You know, like (laughs) what, what pregnancy glow? I mean, no, I mean, people do look gorgeous when they're pregnant. I think it's like a really beautiful time in people's lives, but your skin can really take a turn. Oh, and obviously your hair. So during your pregnancy, your hair can actually become amazing. It can become really thick and luscious and Part of that is because your hair shedding decreases significantly while you're pregnant. But then, so it has to do with how your hair cycles. So normally your hair is like all the hairs on your head are in like different phases of their life. Some are in a growth phase, some are in a rest phase, some are in a shedding phase. And when you're pregnant, all of your hairs basically get on the same page and they all go into like a growth phase together. And so normally when you would have had some hair shedding and some hairs resting and some hairs growing, they're like, all growing. And that's what makes people's hair just so luscious when they're pregnant. But then you have a baby and then your hair is like, nah, I'm not keeping this up. And then three months later, all your hair falls out. Got it. Wow. So interesting. I mean, our yeah, body, it's our kind body. of crazy. I don't think we know why that happens. And well, maybe we do. And I just am not aware of it, but yeah, but of course all things go back to how they were. Uh, and that postpartum hair shedding is probably something I see someone in my clinic for on a weekly basis, if not more often, because it's really distressing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hair loss, I think in general, or changes to our hair, changes to oh. our skin is really, really stressful. And it seems like seasons like pregnancy, postpartum, menopause, or just hormonal shifts, whenever, yeah. for whatever reasons seem to very much impact what you see, I'm sure in your clinic. Yeah, totally. You're exactly right. Those are like the biggest times in people's lives when I see them. It's like perimenopausal. So even like when they start going through menopause or when they're finishing menopause and then postpartum, 100%. (laughs) So what do we do if we start to notice some changes to our hair or skin, whether it's acne or hair loss? Like what's considered normal? What's considered a problem? And like, what can we do about it? Yeah. So I think... 
Okay. So normal postpartum hair loss starts about three months after delivery and it can be really striking. Like people will you know, complain of like clumps of hair coming out. You can lose up to like 50% of your hair. But it, I always tell the patient, like if it is alarming you, come to the dermatologist because yes, it is normal to shed after pregnancy, but if it feels like just really abrupt or a lot, it never hurts to see your doctor about it because there are other things that can happen in your pregnancy. It can affect your thyroid. If you had a lot of bleeding during your delivery, uh, it can affect your iron levels, which might need to be restored. So there's a lot of other things that kind of can be adjusted by the doctor. And so I always say, if you're if something's going on with your body and you're just like, this isn't normal for me, see a dermatologist, see your doctor. Like there's no harm in that. The, the best thing I can tell patients is this is normal. Don't worry about it. It'll go away. But I think it's always worth checking out. So I always hesitate to say if something is like normal because... <laughs> I don't, I don't want patients to like self-diagnose and then have a, an untreated problem for longer than they should. Absolutely. And we, um, this podcast and any, any work that I do, to always try to encourage people to advocate for themselves. If something feels off or not right or uncomfortable, get some professional guidance. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like sometimes patients are embarrassed because they're like, well, I don't know if this is like really an issue or they'll come to me and they'll say, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Do derms even like treat hair? And I'm like, yeah, it's like literally one of the main things we do is treat hair. Right. Uh, and yeah, I just feel like I've caught a lot of weird things. I've caught an ovarian tumor in someone who had really extreme wow. hair loss or like a testicular tumor. Like there are like crazy, obviously not in a woman, but there are, there are things that can go wrong in the body that cause these. And I don't say that to make anyone nervous because hair loss is part of life, but just to know that there are specialists out there who can guide you through that process. And you don't, don't just sit at home and worry about it or like spend thousands of dollars on over-the-counter treatments that might not work, just get some professional help. Right. So is there like, from a very just basic, how we take care of ourselves standpoint, is there supplements or certain nutrients in food that you think are critical for supporting our skin if we're struggling with hair loss or hair changes or skin changes, um, things that we can do from that perspective? Yeah. So I would say, I mean, most people, if you eat a well-rounded diet where you're getting adequate fruits and veggies, adequate protein, does not necessarily need to be an animal protein, but you know, legumes and nuts and things like that, or tofu. If you're doing that in America, where most people do not have issues with their nutrition or like severe nutritional deficits, most times what you get through your diet is completely enough. And hair vitamins and nail vitamins and things like that. That is another thing where like people are just desperate because their hair is falling out or their nails are brittle. And they're like, I need something. I need biotin or I need vitamin D or whatever they think they need. And so they supplement. And so no, most times, most people don't need it. The things I see more recently with people having problems with their skin and hair are, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but there are, so things like intermittent fasting, which has a lot of really good benefits for the body can really harm people's hair sometimes or their skin and give them problems uh, like hair shedding just because it's kind of an extreme way to live and the body can perceive it that way. But otherwise, not really. Like I usually do not recommend a hair or nail vitamin of any kind or a skin vitamin and then having adequate amount of protein. So some people have really, really low protein diets. Like some of my vegan patients are not getting enough protein in their diet and so their hair is falling out for that reason. So getting enough protein and just having like enough fruits and veggies in your diet is the main thing. You can always take a multivitamin if you're worried about it, but you don't need a supplement beyond that. 
Okay. No, that's really good to know. Cause I think that we, I think, especially I've seen it in mom groups in different forums and settings, people just recommending, well, just take this supplement. It made a huge difference in my hair or this or that. And maybe there's, maybe there's truth to that. Maybe there's placebo to that. But for the most part, I think it's helpful to hear that uh, we're not missing out necessarily. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of that evidence is anecdotal. It's like one person saying, oh, this worked for me. And like, there's a reason we don't conduct scientific studies that way. There's a reason we have it like in, in a very controlled environment where we're regulating what everyone is doing because anecdotal evidence is not, it's not really evidence. Wild um, concept, my friend. <laughs> 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 what about, so with hair and shampoo and conditioner and product and stuff like that, what are some basic things we can do to keep our hair as healthy as possible with products and then just basic hair care tips in general? Totally. So I think first I'll just touch on like frequency of hair washing and things like that. Cause there seems to be like a lot of mystery about like how often you need to wash your hair or should or should not. You can wash your hair as much or as little as you like. I say, if your hair smells bad, it looks greasy or you're getting a lot of flaking on your scalp, then you probably need to increase your frequency of hair washing, but it's not going to make you have more oil. It's not going to make you shed more if you wash your hair more frequently. I don't know where like. I mean, I'm not a frequent hair washer. I probably do it like twice a week, but that is just because I hate washing my hair because I hate styling my hair. But if I was getting greasy hair more often, I would have no problem showering or washing it more often than that. So that's the first thing. If you feel like you need to wash your hair every day, go ahead and wash your hair every day. It's fine. And then in terms of like shampoos and conditioners and all of that, they're all pretty darn similar. They all have slightly different preservatives in them. They all have slightly different detergents that they use to wash your hair with. I usually just say the shampoo and conditioner market have it down. If you have really fine, thin hair, buy a volumizing shampoo or a volumizing conditioner. Like It is pretty basic. There aren't ingredients that really need to be avoided. I think if people have really sensitive scalps, avoiding things with SLS in them, which is like sodium lauryl sulfate, which can be an irritating ingredient, but you can use Pantene or you can use living proof. Like it does not matter if it's salon quality or not. There's not a huge difference in those shampoos. It's more like, do you like how it makes your hair look and feel? Okay. No, that's really good to know. Because again, I think we are marketed from so many different angles of like, this is the healthiest or the best shampoo. And, you know, it's really hard to navigate, you know, what, you know, is this hurting my hair? Oh, my hair is really thin or my hair is really frizzy or my hair is really this. And you want to choose a product that is going to like help your situation. Totally. And it's, it's a lot about like trial and error. Like I probably go through so many different shampoos and conditioners and a shampoo and conditioner might work for you for a little while. And then you have to change it up because your hair just isn't responding to it the way it was once before. And, but yeah, they're not, they're not super different. Um, obviously I, hopefully the hairstylist of the world will not come for me on this, but I do think if you are going to buy like salon quality stuff, you need to buy it from a reputable place like your hair salon or like from the manufacturer's website, because there are definitely a lot of like fraudulent skincare and hair care products out there that go through Amazon and things like that. So that is one thing I will recommend is, is buying it like directly from your person or whatever. Right. And as far as people who actually do their hair and style it, which is, I am not those people. <laughs> I mean, is that like a frequency that you would recommend of like, don't curl your hair 
straight iron or yeah, those things are. not necessarily. So it's more about like wh- how much your hair can tolerate. So the biggest thing is not using super high heat. So it's better to do a couple extra, say you're straightening your hair. It's better to do a couple extra passes over the hair at a lower heat setting than to do like one pass with your hair straightener turned up to like 450 degrees. You usually want to keep it under 350 degrees. The other thing is you really want to make sure your hair is completely dry before you curl it or straighten it. Like you do not want to see steam coming off the iron of any kind because that is literally the the moisture in your hair boiling. Uh, And that is super, super destructive to the hair shaft. Okay, interesting. And so speaking of destructive to the hair... (laughs) I feel like I saw this somewhere. I don't know where. So tell me if this is like true or false. (laughs) So you shouldn't brush your hair when it's wet, right? Or no? Yes, that's true. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty true. So basically your hair, when it's wet, the cuticle of the hair, so like that surrounding part of the hair is really hydrated and fragile. So if you use like a brush with really tight bristles and you pull on it, sometimes you can hear like little hair snapping, like that sound. Sometimes I hear people on YouTube when I'm watching someone, I I can hear their hair breaking. So yeah, I usually recommend either like a wide tooth comb or a wet brush. So those are hair, those are brushes that are like specially formulated for wet hair or like just raking your fingers through your hair as like the best way to brush your hair when it's wet or damp. Or just let it dry a little bit before brushing it. Exactly. But even if it's wet at all, I really do not recommend like a tight bristled brush. Okay. That's good. Are there, is there a certain brand of brushes that you like in general? So there's a brand literally called wet brush. They're like somewhere between seven and $11 at like the drugstore or, or Ulta or Amazon. And I like that one a lot. I feel like it, it does what I need it to do. But, you know, I have like fine to medium, semi-straight to wavy hair. I, I don't have like super curly or frizzy hair. So it kind of depends on people's hair. But I, I like the wet brush a lot. Right. And so to loop back a little bit to the skin, if we're seeing changes as far as acne or like maybe more oily or more dry, that's a troubleshooting that should be done with a dermatologist, correct? Yes, 100%. I mean, it's so worth it to just see it. I mean, it's hard because sometimes it's, it can take a month or two to get into your dermatologist, which yeah. is super annoying. But yes, I would just see a dermatologist because then they can tell you like what kind of acne you have, what ingredients are actually going to be helpful for you. You can like ask questions about your products. So I always am happy if a patient brings their products in to kind of walk them through what they can use or what they can hold off on. And you're just going to save yourself like so much time and frustration by just seeing a doctor. That's so great. Okay, so let's talk about scars, stretch marks, and loose skin, or just any of those aesthetic changes to skin that drive women crazy. Oh, this is so tough. So I think, so stretch marks, I think are some of the like most common things I see and feel like I have to give a disappointing answer to my patients about. So stretch marks are somewhat hereditary. So there's, you can be genetically predisposed to get stretch marks especially with pregnancy, the closer to term you hold your baby in your body, the the more likely you are to have stretch marks just because a lot of that baby growth in the last couple of weeks of pregnancy can be where you get a lot of stretch marks. So prevention is the best thing you could do for your stretch marks, but that's hard to do. There's no oil or cocoa butter or anything that you put on your skin that is really going to make a big difference. The big thing is not having rapid weight gain in your pregnancy. Okay. 
So and that's, that's sort of the preventative thing, but as far as product, then there's not really anything preventative to do. It's just no. kind of like control what you can in terms of how the baby grows, I guess. <laughs> exactly. How the baby grows. I know it's so hard to tell a pregnant woman, don't gain weight rapidly. You're growing a creature or right. a human. Yeah. <laughs> I gained 50 pounds with each of my boys and there was just like no, there was no control. It just was like straight yeah. into my belly button. Totally. <laughs> it's really, it's really hard. So then once you have the stretch marks, there is maybe some data to say that topical retinol. So the same thing I talked about earlier that helps with like wrinkles and fine lines that topical retinoids can be used. Those should be prescription strength and you should discuss that with a dermatologist before using them. But those might be helpful. There are a few lasers that can be helpful with stretch marks, but it's usually like a slow process and it's expensive because laser treatments are expensive and you usually need a lot of them. So if I have someone in there and we have to go over budget and like what they're willing to spend and also what their expectations are because some stretch marks go away really well with lasers and some just don't respond and you can't always tell who's going to be a great responder and who's not. But if you really want to get rid of stretch marks, the, the probably surgery is like the, the best way, like a tummy tuck to like surgically remove a lot of that loose tissue and skin is, is the best thing you can do. Mm-hmm. And so as far as like loose skin, same, same thing, no product, nothing that we can really do to like tighten that aside from maybe a laser. Or- yeah, maybe a laser. But if someone's like coming to me with stretch marks and loose crepey skin, that crepey skin has to be like surgically cut out. There's nothing like it's the, basically the elastic fibers in that skin are, are ruined and they're not going to be able to be restored. So the only way to really do that is to cut it out from the body. And I'm like, it sounds so bad and so intense and like such an extreme thing. But unfortunately, once that tissue is damaged, it, it doesn't really restore itself on its own. Right. And for those of you listening, like I think a take-home message here is it's a very common occurrence postpartum. It's a very common experience. And it is what many, many, many postpartum bodies look like. We're just not always shown the the loose skin or the stretch marks. And so that's why a, a culture of really being able to accept the changes and not always be in this like, I must fix it mindset. Yeah. Really oh my good. gosh. I mean, half of what I do is just like empowering women to be like happy with what, like that it's fine. They delivered a healthy baby and that's like and that their body is just having, it's just showing that. Right. And I feel like, I mean, I look at naked people all day long in my job. Like it is really rare that I find someone who's had a baby that doesn't have stretch marks and loose skin. It is. Yeah. Of course people aren't like walking around necessarily parading it because they're a little bit self-conscious, but it's on everyone. It, it's, it's there. It's normal. Right. And I think that's the thing is we're chasing like the before and we're chasing like well, I need to get and make myself look better. This needs to be different. And we can't be happy until this thing is fixed. And that is a, that is something that has to change from within. That's not something that exercise or fitness or diet or dermatology can truly when we're talking. Or surgery, like, or surgery. I have plenty of patients who I'm work like they've had tummy tucks by plastic surgeons and then I'm working on their tummy tuck scars to help them make them look better or whatever. And they're still not happy. And so it, it is, it's totally an internal process. Absolutely. So with scars, same thing as well, right? As, yeah, there. If someone has like a thickened C-section scar that's raised and pink and bumpy, I can definitely make that look better. So we can inject steroids into the skin to kind of soften that scar and flatten it out. I can use lasers to kind of take the pink color out of that scar. So I definitely do a lot of scar, not revision, because revision really means we're cutting out the scar and resewing the tissue, but scar 
enhancement basically to make those look better. Yeah. But the one thing you could do is if you are postpartum and you have a fresh tummy or not tummy tuck scar, excuse me, a C-section scar is to use something called silicone gel sheets. They can be bought at like CVS or over the counter. You can buy them on Amazon. They're basically like a silicone sheet that you put over your scar. And there's some good data to show that it helps keep the scar flatter and prevent it from getting wider. Right. And that would be something that you would put on after the incision is completely healed. Like, so maybe around the six or eight week mark. Yeah. I usually say, actually, I mean, really once your staples or stitches come out, you can start using it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's really good to know. Um, So now let's talk about the culture of Botox. (laughs) (laughs) How do we know who we can trust to inject our face or what is good and safe and just Or if Botox isn't something someone wants to do, is there a similar option? Like what are our options for that? Yeah. So Botox is what we call a neuromodulator. So it basically disrupts the signaling between your muscles and your nerves so that it softens your facial expression. So it's really good for people who are getting wrinkles from maybe scowling too much, or some people naturally hold their face in like certain tensioned positions and it causes a lot of wrinkles or like forehead lines, crow's feet, all that stuff. So is this is so tricky because the regulation of who can inject Botox is pretty broad. I think you in California, you have to be a nurse, a physician, assistant, or a physician. And you can be any type of physician. You could be an emergency medicine doctor. You could be an OBGYN. You can be a dentist and legally be allowed to inject Botox. And so- What would you I, recommend though? Because that, that seems- yeah. Oh, that, well, God. Totally, totally. I personally would recommend, especially if you have never had Botox before, that you go to someone who is board certified in some type of facial aesthetics doctoring. So that's a dermatologist, oculoplastic surgeon, so an eye doctor that's done special training in plastic surgery or a plastic surgeon. There are some ear, nose, and throat doctors, so ENT doctors that have done like facial plastics fellowships. That is who I would start with. You know, we've all taken an oath to do no harm. We really put, I mean, it's not saying that other practitioners don't put the patient first at all. The training is just, it's just different. Right. No, I I think people listening to this really appreciate like knowing what to look for because it's hard. We don't know. We literally get our information from social media or from a fellow mom. (laughs) Right. And I mean, I guess the other thing is if you have a friend who's has really good Botox and they're very happy with their experience and everything looks really good. And the person who injected them is a physician assistant or a nurse. I'm not opposed to that. Those people are educated and they, they know, and they want to take really good care of their patients too. But I think you have to like, yeah, you do have to do your homework because like anyone can put a needle in someone's face, which is scary. And not everyone has the same ethical standards. Right. That's why there's so much carryover to the fitness industry (laughs) (laughs) and who's giving what advice for what person at what time. So how does Botox like work? And then how often does it need to be done? And is it something that you would encourage people to do? Mm Mm-hmm. So Botox, it comes as like a powder essentially, and you have to do something called reconstituting it. So you put it in, you put liquid into it, which basically turns it into this liquid that can be injected into the muscles of the face, or, I mean, it can be injected anywhere into any muscle, but I use it cosmetically in the face and neck area. And yeah, it's a protein that essentially 
prevents signaling between your muscles and nerves. So when you inject it, say into your forehead muscles, you now cannot, when your brain is trying to say, raise your eyebrows, the muscle just is not getting that signal. So your eyebrows are not raised. When you use really high doses of Botox, you can completely paralyze the muscles so that it's like frozen and doesn't move. And I think most people are not going for that look when they're getting Botox. They still want to have movement. They just want to have less movement so that they're not making creases in their face. So I always want my patients to look natural and like every, like they don't have Botox. They should just look refreshed. And I do recommend Botox. (laughs) Um, I, I think it really is of all the cosmetic things you can do, it always works. Like it always, it's so consistent in the result you can get. Mm -hmm. And it really can like, especially for people who think they have to be like high maintenance cosmetics to do Botox. I actually think Botox is better and even easier for my lower maintenance people who don't want to put makeup on, who just want to like look good when they wake up kind of thing. And you usually have to do it every like three to five months, depending on how fast your body metabolizes the botulinum toxin. That's really good to know. I, yeah. Cause I think there's so much confusion around that and knowing how to start and how much to start with. And, but I think just having that, that professional guidance makes a huge. Exactly. Yeah. They will, t- they should tell you how much you need. I always offer my new patients to be able to come back in the ne- in like within two weeks to kind of like touch things up or just like right. have me look at it and make sure that they're happy with it. And so, yeah, it's, and it's really safe. It's been around over 30 years. People it's, you know, it has the name toxin in it. So of course, like the same thing, people are really scared. Like, I don't want to inject toxin into my body, but it's not toxic. So toxins don't have to be toxic. It's all about the dose and we're not using high doses when we're using this. Okay. Well, that's really good to know. Is there anything that you wish more people knew in general about dermatology or skincare? Like what do you have a message for the masses? Yeah. If you want a skincare hair and nail expert, you have to see a board certified dermatologist, not a board certified nurse practitioner, not a board certified physician assistant. That's not even a thing, but a lot of people are claiming to be skin experts. And it's not to say that they don't have knowledge and that they're not able to share that. But if we know all the bad things and all the good things that can be done with skin. And you want someone who has a really wide and deep knowledge base to be taking care of you. Right. I think that's excellent information and can be pertained to so many different things. <laughs> so tell us if people have a question for you after listening to this podcast, is it okay for them to send you a DM? Yes. Oh my gosh. Please DM me. I I'm pretty darn good at getting back to my DMs. Although I kind of like if you follow me too, because it's a little insulting when you're asking someone for their advice and then it's like, but they're not going to follow you. I don't know why. That just hurts me to my core. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I understand where I'm like, I share about this all the time. Or if you click that one link in my bio, you might just get- Yeah. People are like, oh, doctor, where do you practice? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe just look at the top where it says exactly. Right. Oh no. Reading is hard. Um, so where can people find you? Like what is your, what's your Instagram handle? So my Instagram handle is at Dr. Samantha Ellis. So at Dr. Samantha Ellis. And that is the easiest way to like get in touch with me. Find me. My practice website is in my bio on my Instagram. I share in my stories is like probably the place I'm the most active with like daily tips and skincare advice and things like that. I probably should post to the grid more often, but ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, I know you're doing such a great (laughs) job. I love watching your stories. I'm learning a lot. And even for somebody like me who, um, 
is as new to this as possible, even though I'm probably a few years behind. I'm really looking forward to getting, just taking it a little bit more seriously because I know that it's a component of our health and fitness and wellness now and long-term. And that's what I want you guys to take away from this episode is we're not, it's not just about your exercise. We have to really prioritize all components of our health. I love that. Totally agree. Thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you are a postpartum athlete and you're really trying to figure out what next, what does my return to fitness look like? What do I do about my core, my pelvic floor? How do I get back into the movements I want to do in a way that I feel really confident about? I have you covered because I know exactly what it's like to be where you are as a coach, as an athlete, and as a mom. So I want you to download six exercises for the first six weeks postpartum. It's a free resource and it just goes over everything that I think is really important to take into consideration during those early weeks postpartum. Now, if you're ready to begin more of an exercise program, say you've been cleared by your doctor or midwife, I have a eight week postpartum athlete training program, which acts as the perfect entry back into fitness, into the gym, into the kind of movement that you want to do where it's still respecting the changes your body has gone through and how your baby was delivered, but it really helps connect your rehab into the kind of fitness that you want to do in a way that's relatable and fun and exactly what your body needs right now on behalf of your long-term function and performance.